again into the soccer OG. Hey, that's me, Max Bretos. This is episode 92. As always, a reminder to rate, review, download, subscribe, and tell a friend. We're into the month of October. Oh, it's on. Oh, it's on. You gotta get ready. You gotta cram. You gotta educate yourself on everything about the World Cup. And this is a good place to do it. Can't wait to tell you what's going to happen in the World Cup regarding this podcast. Very exciting stuff. In the meantime, just spread the word. This week, we'll be joined by Meg Swanick, the uh, writer who covers the U.S. men's national team and all U.S. soccer for the Philadelphia Inquirer. Also recently announced that she will be covering the 2022 World Cup for BR Football and also writes for The Guardian. So very busy, great writer. And uh, we're going to talk to her about this U.S. men's national team. We're also going to talk about what happened on Monday with the release of the uh, Sally Yates investigation, the New York Times report, just uh, really revolting reports about what was happening in NWSL with sexual, uh, just abuse, deviancy, everything. And she's been able to cover it, really appalling stuff, so... um, it's, a, it's the biggest soccer story out there. We got to talk about it because this can't happen again. And from this horrific incident, things have got to get much better. And we've seen this happen in other cases where there was, it was reported where uh, we really came down, where, where people got in, in major hot water and things changed. And hopefully that happens here. But we'll talk about Meg as she's been covering that. And uh, really looking forward to that. I've been really enjoying uh, her contributions for the U.S. team as well, which we'll get into after we've wrapped up this September camp. In stoppage time, it's Champions League week. So we'll preview that a little bit. Some important matchups. We'll talk about how uh, it will look for the U.S. players as well. But we are off and running. Another episode of the Soccer OG. Let's go. off I want to say uh, how thrilled I am I got the news yesterday so uh, working for LAFC obviously many of you know about the Apple TV deal and how MLS will now be providing the productions for all the MLS games so I would cover games I'm hired by LAFC and I'd cover LAFC games but I'd also do a lot more but now we have to do that from MLS we're going to see how that maps out Hopefully we get some news very soon about that. But if LAFC, who clinched the Supporter Shield this weekend, had not done that, in all likelihood, this game this weekend against Nashville, I would have they would have been taken by the national media, which means I called my last game two weeks ago against Houston. And I would have lost some sleep if we didn't call this game. And I feel bad for Brian Dunseth and the Real Salt Lake crew because they lost their game. And, you know, they want to, you know, everyone wants to squeeze every last drop out of this. But I, everyone wants to have a chance to say goodbye to the fans. This was a, this is the job I wanted all the time. I wanted to, I wanted to be in Los Angeles and, and, and work for uh, one of the major sports teams. I did it for the Galaxy and I was honored to do that. But I do it for LAFC. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity. And I got to be the voice of that. And that was really important because you think of all the great voices that have covered sports here in Los Angeles. And I'm glad I got that. So great news on that front to the folks who are who will tune in on KCOP 13. Look forward to seeing you there and the LAFC lifting a supporter shield. It's a charmed life. I, I don't deserve it, but I got it. Very happy. We are going to get into our... By the way, check out the Soccer OG on YouTube. Got a new video out there about the U.S. men's national team players that have the most to gain with their clubs before the U.S. roster is announced on November the 9th. Some interesting names because I think the 26 players are probably already determined now by Greg Berhalter. Maybe 24, 25 of them. But some guys can move up and down within that roster. I'll tell you who I think they will be. That is a soccer OG on YouTube under my name, Max Bretos. Now let's talk about this weekend. This was a, it was a following the September window, how these American players did. We saw Christian Pulisic play for six minutes and have an assist for a new manager. That's great news for him. He impresses Graham Potter, helping a game-winning goal. Managers want to get off to a winning start, and Christian Pulisic helped enable that. Leeds were back. When was the last time we had a Leeds game? It felt like two months ago. So we're going to see Brendan Aronson, Tyler Adams, and Jesse Marsh coaching. I got to have a little pushback on Jesse. Jesse 
just came off a suspension. He had bad language and behavior that he acknowledges. So he had a one-match touchline ban. Jesse has something to say after every game, which is fine. But, you know, I, there's fatigue. And that's why with Jurgen Klopp, I roll my eyes. He, he bitches about everything. And I'm like, oh, boy. Nothing to take away Jurgen Klopp. He's one of the best managers in the world. But sometimes he goes out. He's complaining about the surface. He's complaining about the lack of rest. He's complaining about the schedule. I'm like, yeah. Okay. But Jesse Marsh is becoming a lot like Jurgen Klopp. And I, look, you know me. I support Jesse Marsh to the death. You know, he's changed the, the landscape. Right now, Leeds, I think, are in 12. They are in 12th. They have two wins in seven. They have nine points. So they, they would like to get some results here. And they've kind of looked pretty flat. I've lacked that dynamic quality that they had in the opening couple weeks. But they played Aston Villa. And Jesse Marsh had these comments to say. Villa slows the game down. Two, two or three opponents throw the ball away like them. They take minutes on every goal kick. We need to help manage this. We can't do this alone. Sad thing that it, we have the best environment in the league, in my opinion, and our fans don't come here to watch snail-paced match. Yeah. Really? Really. For the record, Leeds had a player red-carded because they were delaying the game, which is basically what Jesse says Aston Villa was doing. He's not wrong, but this can't be going on every week. This pointing fingers business, it's getting real old real quick. And I know Jesse's got that persona, but sometimes like, let's cool it off a bit. Let's cool it off. And guess who what? The referees are getting tired of it. And if there's no results, a lot of other people, fan stuff are going to get tired of it. And we don't want that. We don't want that. But Jesse's being Jesse. And what can you say? But Leeds were back. Um, We saw some Weston McKinney get an hour for Juventus. He had an assist for Dujan Vlahovic. That was very good as well. And... Serginho Des, uh, there's an injury in front of him for Milan. He might be playing some more minutes. We'll talk about uh, Milan as well in the stoppage time when we look at the Champions League. Uh, but it was uh, it wasn't a great. Or oh, Ricardo Pepe scored a goal, but you know Groningen got blasted four to one. It was it wasn't a great top heavy, but we're getting there. There's some good news. Yunus Musa is returning to training. Tim Weah was in the 18-man squad for Lille, did not play. I'm getting some guys back in there. We, we have to hope that everything clicks by the time the World Cup comes around with regards to this squad. Uh, there's going to be injuries for the World Cup. If we're not going to have a fully... You, there's no way we're going to have a fully loaded team. We just got to hope there's minimal amount of injuries or what, what have you heading into that game November the 21st. But every window, there's a ton of injuries. This one was really bad. There was five or six key players missing. So, you know, I, I've told you about Gio Reyna. I, I, I just don't, I just, I don't see it. I hope he does well, but it's just, it's an uphill battle for club and country to be healthy. Will it be, will Chris Richards? He hasn't come back. Someone get will Christian Pulisic, who has who's been good lately, knock on wood, will he get an injury? I don't know. I don't want I don't want to put that out there. But I just think it's crazy to think that November 21st rolls around and we're like, we have a fully loaded team. No chance, right? Well, stranger things have happened. We shall see about that. And uh which is a good to get all the leagues back. It was a really good weekend in the Premier League. Really enjoyed it. So much to talk about. You know, Newcastle's coming on strong. Uh, Liverpool's struggles are very interesting. Brighton, you know, getting a 3-3 result. Uh, Leandro Trossard getting the hat trick there. Uh, West Ham finally scoring some goals. That's good. Talked a little bit about what happened to Serie Real Madrid struggling a bit in La Liga. But the big one, obviously, that we had the, the North London derby, which Arsenal now clear up first place in the Premier League. Fantastic story there. And then Erling Holland getting another hat trick. And uh, Foden got a hat trick too, so we don't want to diminish what he did. Six goals against Manchester United just blew the doors off of him. And that was just stunning to watch. You know, Holland is on track for 66 goals this season. He's not slowing down. And they play Copenhagen in the Champions League this week. What's going to happen there? He had three goals, he assisted on two goals against Manchester United. 
And he's, I mean, he, he could have scored a couple more. We've never seen anything like this. I mean, it's a different domination than we would see from Cristiano Ronaldo, Lionel Messi. And it's a perfect combination for Manchester City. It's just perfect. So, I mean, whatever they paid for him, it was like $80 million. I mean, what, what's his value now? $150 million? I mean, he could be a $200 million player if he keeps hitting these goals. I mean, he's going to... Mohamed Salah has the record. The number escapes me. is like 34 goals. He's going to break that, right? The number of hat tricks in a season, which I think Michael Owen has, he's going to break that. This is going to be a season for the ages. It's not that he's going to hit a bad patch. It's just a perfect situation. He has all those guys around him and Silva and Foden and Grealish and, you know, this whole Gundogan. Everyone's looking to get him involved for Manchester City. And they're going to, he's going to get more hat tricks. He's going to have a four goal game. It's going to be insane. So enjoy that. I, I really am. It just gives me so much joy to watch him play. The way he just thunders up there. So he was the obviously the man of the moment with regards to the weekend. So a lot to absorb. I can't go on and on. You could if you're talking about this sport. But we have a great guest, Meg Swanick, the Philly Inquirer, BR Football, joining us here in the business end. Stick around for stoppage time where we'll preview the Champions League round three, the halfway point already. Here we go. this end and uh, very happy to welcome in for the first time hopefully not the last time to uh, the soccer OG Meg Swanick who writes for the Philly Inquirer will be on the ground in Qatar for BR football as well as writing for the Guardian I mean that's uh those are some heavy hitters right there Meg BR I mean in three different worlds congratulations <laughs> yeah yeah I'm, I'm straddling different uh news industries but yeah I'm, I'm thrilled to be writing for all of them and uh, you will be in Qatar, so you will get. Uh, have, yeah. have you covered a, a World Cup like this before? I have not. I have attended World Cups. This will actually be my fourth World Cup that I've been present for, but my first World Cup that I'm there in a media official capacity. That is fantastic. I got to ask you about the Philly Inquirer. It seems like if every newspaper covered soccer as thoroughly as the Inquirer did, this sport would be on much better footing. Is that fair to say? Because I see it all, I see it all the time. I've been really locked in because it's being with LAFC and they're competing with the union for the supporter shield. I see a lot of articles coming out there. It is, they're pretty comprehensive with the sport. Yeah. And I think that goes down to a few key individuals. I agree with you completely. I mean, obviously I'm biased, but I think that they have very strong advocates for covering the game, reporting the game and, and growing it. Um, Jonathan Townenwald, who's their main soccer reporter, is one of them, but Andrea Canales as well, who um, is their main editor for, for soccer reporting, have, have really made an impact, making sure that soccer is front and center. I know them both, and uh, I've, I'd like to consider them friends, and I love, I'm, I'm glad that they're in good footing and in good hands with regards to that. And uh, I mean, I, I, was, uh, I was drawn to you because of your coverage of the U.S., men's national team and the world cup uh being and you're joining me from you're in london i've been watching your posts you'll be in germany and covering the game uh it's it's got to be pretty exciting and you were generally there um to cover the sport but with a a specific eye on our american players abroad how has that dynamic um changed what's it what's it been like how i mean being in i mean we see it here but being in europe and how these americans are received uh, it's obviously different. We know we have these perceptions with American players uh, and coaches for that matter. Um, but now we're seeing them not only play for teams, be successful and kind of, you know, at times being the favorite player of a kid in Germany or London or what have you. I think it's really shifted over time. I mean, when you think about the past few decades, obviously it's shifted drastically. Um, but when I, well, when I go to these places, I mean, I, I've been abroad a lot the past year, but I, this most recent stint, I started in Glasgow um, with the old firm. I was at the old firm. I met up with some Rangers fans, with some um, Celtic fans. I met up after that. I went to, where did I go after that? Dortmund. 
from there I went to Mönchengladbach, from there I was in Dusseldorf and, and Cologne, um, then to Spain, now I'm in London, my last job before the World Cup. And talking to people who are supporters of all the different clubs where we have players stationed, you know, I, I think they're excited about American talent generally. They're excited about the specific players that we have there. They're bald-faced about, and you know, it's not perfect. I think we should be honest about the level. You know, we're, we're still working our way into having more stars or more key role players at those clubs. But yeah, they're excited about the role that their players are doing at, at each of those clubs. I think it was, uh, it was interesting. There was uh, when these uh, September camps were rolling out, the social media, and I don't know who it is. It could be someone high up in the club. It could be a kid that got hired to handle the social media. But Gladbach had a, a post pushing for Joe Scally. And then Union Berlin yeah. did one for Jordan yeah. Peefock. And I was, I was like, never in my million years I thought they would go above and beyond to kind of uh, present it that way. But they're looking out for their guys. Absolutely. And they're smart too. And you know, you'll definitely get engagement that way as well. So it's and they did. very business savvy. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's some business savviness to that. I actually also was in Berlin for a bit and I went to a Union Berlin game, but I'm bad luck for American strikers. I was in, so I was here for the Women's Euros in July. And when I went to go profile Daryl Pique, he got injured the day before. When I went to Berlin and I went to a Union Berlin game, um, it was their first Europa League match and, and Jordan Peacock picked up an injury the day before. So I didn't catch the players at either of those games, but I'm going to stop profiling strikers. I have no intention to going to Josh I've got a bad track record there now. But yeah, no, they're, they're very accommodating. They're excited not just to have American players on the team, but excited to have American journalists show up. That's been my experience. Very accommodating, very interested to ask me for my perspective on where the team is at, you know, why I'm there, who do I write for, what do I think about the quality of these players and, and, and their growth tra trajectory. So it's, it's more than just the individual players. I think there's excitement and acceptance also for, for American soccer. But, but no trips planned to Norwich to see Josh Sargent and none to no. go to Groningen to see Ricardo Pepe probably. Those are off your list. No. You're, not, you're not getting your, your passport stamped. <laughs> A couple of times. Or your, your staff's already pants, pants stamped in England, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, given my track record, I, I think I'm bad luck to strikers. I'm just going to leave the rest of the strikers alone until further. I'm not going to <laughs> Dallas either. If you've got a striker, I'm not going. Well, that's a right now we need all the good luck with strikers, center backs, and goalkeepers. So feel free to cover midfielders. Yes. Feel free to cover wingers. <laughs> uh, but those, yeah. those three we got to steer clear from now. I, I think it's really interesting because hearing your voice on the U.S. men's national team calls, um, covering the U.S. as is many in many strains and many departments with regards to um, coverage of the sport, it's been a boys' club, especially the U.S. team. I mean, I, I know all those guys, and uh, you know, from Grant to to Jeff Carlisle uh, across the board, Stephen Goff, these guys, and to see you co to come in, it must have been I don't know how it was intimidating, but I didn't, I didn't see it with you. You kind of blended right in and gained that respect. What is, it's gotta be challenging. We can't diminish that because you are, you are a trailblazer in many ways. And many years from now, there'll be several women covering the national team and covering the soccer to uh, as, as, as well as the men do right now, but certainly there's perceptions and whatever, you, whatever there is, which is I'm sure very disappointing, but what was that like for you to, to kind of break in there and how were you received? It's been a mixed bag. I mean, I think that there are certainly specific individuals who deserve credit for having gone out of their way to accommodate me. Grant Wall being one of them, Jeff Carlisle being another. Um, Jonathan Tannenwald also, who isn't always with the national team, but is kind of my counterpart in Philadelphia, who's always there to give advice and, and guidance. And so I think I would, I would definitely tip my hat to them for providing support, but I kind of just inserted myself um, and I think I As have a should. personality <laughs> and I, I think I have a personality where I don't mind being um, different or the only one or, or even unaccepted sometimes. Um, and I think that comes from a lot of things. I mean, I have a background 
working in in travel and international education i've lived abroad a lot i've lived in several countries including the uk the czech republic myanmar thailand spent a lot of time in places like russia or china or you know i've traveled i've traveled a lot i've very often been outside of my comfort zone so being outside of my comfort zone is comfortable to a certain extent and i think that that kind of was a factor great advice great advice and i like to be here on on this podcast and I, I i hope to think some young people that want to follow the footsteps of you and i are tuning in and i tell that to people all the time get out of your comfort zone and i remember right out of college i traveled a bit with uh with no money in my pocket and to fend for myself in many ways and it allowed me to make the next step so there you heard it from meg i will concur get yourself out of your comfort zone. I think travel is the best way to do it because you really have to find a way. You have to find a way to communicate, to order food, to get on the train, to, if, you, if, you're, if you're working, to, to get an interview, to do all these things. So, I mean, that's actually, quite frankly, at the top of the list when I come to think about it when you want. I'm going to start saying that to people. I think it's essential. And I think it applies to our team as well. And I respect the career paths of all the different players, but I think, you know, in this in this last camp, I, I was able to interview players like Ricardo Pepe one-on-one and was able to really relate to him about being outside of your comfort zone and being in a different culture and that being difficult sometimes, but that ultimately being good longer term. It's essential, so I think. Let, let's talk about it. It's a great segue because the debate rages on about playing American internationals playing in MLS, which by and large over the last few World Cups the majority have played in this league compared to going to Europe. We had that moment in time, Jurgen Klinsmann encouraging players to go to Europe. I'm not going to give Jurgen all that credit. I think this was a natural progression where players um, started moving that way. Uh, Christian Pulisic, you know, in diapers going over to Europe and starting his professional career. Uh, many starting in MLS in these academies and moving over, but it is a, uh, it's a, a, a shock to the system. And I think of, Ricardo Pepe, who went to Augsburg at, what, 18? Joe Scali, 18. Um, you know, American kids from different places. Uh, Ricardo Pepe from El Paso. Joe Scali from, was at New York State. And making that, that move. Yeah. Because we went through that same process, too. too. And it was a situation, I had a little glitch there, sorry about that. It's We went through that same thing. And it's scary, and you move forward, and it makes you better. So... You talked about getting out of that comfort zone for us, but with these players and having a chance to speak to them and going through that process as well. Uh, how have you seen it? Is there a, a, an ability to see how they were and how they've progressed? Because I can't even imagine going there and all the creature comforts are gone. You know, your favorite restaurant, your friends, your family, but then also the language and the intimidation factor of playing at this top league and having to deliver, I couldn't even imagine if I was 18 years old and going through that. Uh, how important is that for these guys in their development? I think it's long-term essential. I think you really see that in certain players like Weston McKinney or Christian Pulisic who have been doing it for a while now. I think that there is a mental and emotional toughness evident in both of those individuals. I think you see it in players who are starting to get there from a younger level. But I also think, you know, honestly, transparently, I think you see some of the struggle that they're still working through. When I think about players like Ricardo Pepe, I think he was pretty forthcoming about having had difficulty in Germany when I, when I talked to him um, from a cultural level, from a language level. Uh, you know, he said that he would, he would like go and try to talk to people and, knowing people would speak German, he would try to talk to them in English and they would respond, respond to him in German and there was tension in some of his encounters that he had to work through. But I think long-term that's good for him. Um, I think he's in a, a better place that he was honest about having struggled a little bit and he's young and, and that happens. Um, you hear that from other, other players as well. And I think that long-term having gone through that myself, I think ultimately that's gonna build a, a strength of character that's gonna really produce in, in their career. And, and again, I think you see that already with players like Christian Pulisic or Weston McKinney, who I think very self-evidently have that um, mental, emotional toughness, living abroad, spending time abroad, being perceived abroad for a while. 
And you also see the players who are just starting to go through that who might, you know, be still 18, 19 years old and, and, and still starting that path. But it's good for them. It's essential for them. I'm a, I'm um, and I think that there's an interesting, there, sorry, there's an interesting relationship as well between them and the MLS players who have such different experiences. So I think they lean on each other in a certain way as well. That's really cool to hear. And I think that that, that that big picture and maybe you need that balance on the national team to see that. Because, look, I, I'm a big fan. I work for an MLS club. I'm, I, I'm a big believer in what these players have done. And, you know, there is this there is these factions of people that, you know, are critical of MLS players. And there's those that say we don't want any we zero tolerance, no MLS players on the national team. And we talk about Walker Zimmerman, Aaron Long. Jesus Fadeda, those, I think, the big three that would start potentially right now. And then a few others, yeah. Paul Ariola, um, Jordan Morris that would come in. Uh, I will say there is a part of, you know, Jesus Fadeda and Walker Zimmerman, I don't really hear them saying, I want to go to Europe. And I think part of it's because they're comfortable. They're making great money in the league. If I were in those shoes, I would probably do the same. I'm one of those, uh, those people, Meg, that would go, I'm a, I, I've traveled everywhere and I love travel, but after a week, I want to come back to the States. I miss, I miss American milk. Isn't that weird? I don't know. It used to be the milk. The, the, if, I remember Christian. Yogurt. For me, the yogurt. I can't. The yogurt, the dairy products. Yeah, just, <laughs> it's different. It's different. I know these kids now, I think Christian Pulisic said, and I, they, they mentioned they miss Chipotle. So they, they mentioned, I mean, I'm sure there's a Chipotle now in, uh, west london or in germany and so forth but you, you certainly miss these things well by the way what you missed the yogurt is anything else you missed not being in the states because well, you're not mexican, in the states for a while I mean, on the note of on the note of chipotle i think mexican food is not done well in europe at no all. Like yet to have no any, yeah i think that's a big thing actually <laughs> um I mean, outside of that, I think that food-wise, maybe Mexican food, when I've lived abroad, I think Mexican food is the thing that's hardest to get abroad. You can find good like burgers or barbecue abroad, but Mexican food is, is slower to be indoctrinated to places like when I lived in Thailand or, or lived in Europe. But I think also, I mean, just like the cultural familiarity, the lack of having that barrier, you know, it makes sense to me if people just want to be at home. I don't fault them for it. Not everybody has the yearning to be abroad and you can have a, a fulfilling career in MLS, absolutely. And then especially if you have a family, like, you know, like Walker Zimmerman or, you know, obviously that's a factor as well. Um, so I think that I don't fault anyone for not going abroad. I will say this about Mexican food. You're absolutely right. And uh, living in LA, I, I, it's to me, it's it's an easy fix because there's a truck. You just got to get the right ingredients, uh, which you know it's the meat and the pork and the, and then the, the yeah. if you can get them. I don't know if they're readily available, but you can get. I've seen people. I, I've seen guys in Chula Vista or in San Diego on a hot plate, and they just throw it on there, and you have the best taco you ever ate. So maybe there's a business possibility for us, Meg, if you want to get into it. We could we could move away from soccer. We could get into Mexican cuisine and make millions in Europe. Absolutely, I, I think <laughs> that there is a market waiting for us. So, with the balance of MLS, I'm curious to hear what you think. Do you, is it because of what you said about challenging yourself in Europe? And I, and I think that's a big part of. It. We always say they've got to play for the top clubs, but it's more than that. It's about testing yourself with, in the many cases, the best players in the world. Not always. I mean, sometimes we say, let's go, you're not going to get better competition in the Belgian league or the, or the Scandinavian leagues, maybe even not even the Dutch league, but obviously in the case of McKinney, Dest, Pulisic, and, and several, and a few others, a handful of others, you will, but it's also testing yourself as you pointed out. So in a, in a perfect world, do you, would you foresee say 2026 or 2030 that the majority of the players will be European based. I know MLS is going to compete and there's money in MLS. Um, they've, they've done a really good job. This reports of uh, uh, Jean Duran, this 18 year old Colombian now drawing interest from Liverpool. And they're going to, that's a pathway bringing back some European players like a Gareth Bale, who are still in the back end of their prime, but the young American players are in such demand and a good deal. But how would you see that balance say moving forward? We know what we're going to get in 2022, but in 2026, do you think it would be more predominantly European-based? 
I think that we'll see a continued trend toward toward that. But I would personally uh, propose that you'll always have key players in MLS, like the Walker Zimmerman, for example, who I see as one of the leaders of the team. Regardless, you know, I think he, maybe he's not in his best form with Nashville at the moment or, or whatever else. I think he's a key leader of the team. I think the players see him as a leader of the team. Um, I think we'll continue to see the Walkers and Women, even though I, I do think we'll see the continued trend. Because whenever you interview, you know, I write about Philadelphia Union and so you've got all the players in the Union Academy. Whenever you talk to any young up-and-coming academy player, coming through MLS, they want to go to Europe. That's the goal. Everybody wants to go to Europe. And so I think we will see that continued trend, but I, I would imagine we'll still see the Walkers in a minute. And that's very healthy. They want to go to Europe. Yeah. I think it's healthy. They want to go to Europe for those reasons. I think money's a big reason, but MLS may be able to pony up and say, you stay here. We want you here. Like for like Jesus Fereda, for instance, who's like their top 22 under 22 player, one of the top scores in the league and say, if you can produce, we want, we need an American footprint. You really do. It depends on what those players, it's going to be really interesting to see how it, uh, it pans out over the next few years. You obviously covered the September window and it's been pretty bleak with the coverage here. I even said on, on, on Twitter, I go, because I looked at the TV ratings for these two games and they were just really depressing. Uh, I think the Japan game, which was a good opponent. I know it was very early in the morning. It was like 170,000 viewers on ESPN too. So like your, your heart sinks a little bit because we're close to the world cup and I know it's going to ramp up and people are going to get excited. And I'm still, I I look at the, (laughs) the betting lines and the U S are still favored to finish second in that group and make it to the round of 16, which would be a success. You can't tell that based on the reaction after the September. And I, I understand the, the disappointment um, directed at Greg Berhalter. I think most people are on board with the fact that his tactics have not gelled and some of his player selections are not ideal. Uh, But we're now at the point where this is, this is the team and we're going to get, we have four, five, six weeks before we kick this thing off. And with they, and people, this is a huge moment, obviously for the sport. If the U S do well, the excitement brews towards when they host the world cup in 2026, and it's good for me, it's good for you, it's good for everyone that covers. But the neutral, the, you know, the maybe the non, the soccer consumer or the sports consumer that wants to get into the sport right now is looking around saying, wow, this doesn't sound like something I really want to plug into right now. It sounds really dire. So it's not as bad as I think as we collectively have reported. Uh, it's, it's obviously not as good as it should be. I, get, I want to get your idea of where you think it will be. I think you know, a lot of folks were saying the Japan game, for instance, uh, maybe all the opponents should press and try and turn over the U.S. I don't think Wales or Iran are going to do that. So we might see more of a Saudi Arabia game where the U.S. could have success. Granted, Wales are a much higher level. And so Iran may be a, a, a tick better than the Saudis. Where can we, we how would you see the U.S. performing? Where can there be improvement realistically between now and then? I know people aren't happy with the center back pairing. You know, Chris Richards is an ideal guy who could come in, but he's still injured and he doesn't play a lot for Crystal Palace. So I don't see Greg Berhalter just clicking his fingers and go, Richards is in uh, after playing two complete starts with the guys that are there. People want Jordan Pifok. There's chatter that he may come in. I don't know if you have your finger on the pulse on that, even though he wasn't called in on September to be kind of a luxury forward. We're doing this on camera and Meg is smiling. So I'm curious to hear what she has to say. But there are some guys that could move up the pecking order. And I don't know if there's guys that are going to be moving outside the cut line in. But there could be some adjustments. How do you see it and how optimistic are you for uh, November 21st? There's a few things in there. Um, (laughs) It was a loaded statement. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot to address here. So... I would say, first of all, that it was a pretty uh, cataclysmic showing across those two fronts. Fair. And there's been a lot of deflation. And I do think that there's a lot of people who are, the, the, the shame is that there are a ton of people in the U.S. who are ready to be fans of this team. Yes. And if they did, if they did tune in or would have tuned in after that window, they're not <laughs> yet. 
Can you imagine that? So, Can you imagine they tuned in to that Japan game and go, I'm out? Some, well, some did. I mean, I, so I grew up, I have an enormous family. I'm from Philadelphia. I've got like 45 first cousins. It's about, it's an Eagles, Sixers squad. Everyone was watching. Everyone was texting me. So we're cheering for Argentina now after those friendlies. Like we're, they're all looking for other people to cheer for kind of thing. But so, okay. Hope is not lost. I, I still oh, feel hopeful. I'm glad you said that. Although do in the, no, truly, I truly feel that way. I think that we're going to get out of the group. I do. I really do think that. I think that in terms of personnel, um, a lot hinges upon fitness, obviously. In terms of who isn't there, that will be there. I think that's a small cast of characters, personally. I don't think we're going to see, you know, who we saw is basically the team outside of the injured, the injured players. Exceptions to that, I personally have said and still feel Jordan Peacock is going to Qatar. I do. He will be on that roster. That's my personal sense. Well, I, don't, well, I mean, I don't. Can I stop you there? What I mean, because I, I want to believe that, but and I but a lot of people have echoed what you said, and I'm like, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense from Greg Berhalter, but he did say we know what he can provide, and that still leaves the door open. Is it based on what he said, or is there other? Are there other variables involved? My sense, and this has not been said to me directly, this is reading between the lines. My sense from things that Greg has said is that they wanted to evaluate certain players. And I think they wanted to evaluate Josh Sargent, and I think they wanted to evaluate Ricardo Pepe. I think they know what. Little technical difficulty there, but let's. We, we got Meg back, but your last thought was about Greg Verhalter getting a look at Josh Sargent and Ricardo Pepe. Yeah, so I don't think it's a foregone conclusion. You know, I think that if Ricardo Pepe and Josh Sargent are both every game from now on to the World Cup, it would hard not to be bringing both of them. But my personal take on things that Greg said before and during this September window uh, is it's one or the other. And I think PFOC is coming, and I think he wanted to evaluate those two in camp. That's my personal take. Would it be PFOC instead of? A sar- I think we believe Fadeda's is in, not just yeah. not because he's a perfect number nine, but he does things that Greg likes, including pressing, etc. But it would be it wouldn't be four forwards. It would be Pfock yeah. instead of Pepe or Sargent. That's my personal read on the situation. Yeah. Well, there we that is right there the most compelling storyline maybe heading towards November 9th when this rosters. So for the folks that wanted Jordan Pfock, which I think is everyone, uh, you, there's a shot. And and you also feel yeah. you also feel that there could be a situation here where you know you feel confident they should not confident but that the U.S. should make it to the round of sixteen as do I. I don't think it's going to be pretty. I think it could be a lot. Of, it could be a couple one zero games <laughs> or zero zero games, but they'll get enough. If, if we do, it'll be grudge matches, and I think they've got it in them. I, I will say, I mean, I think there's certain things I was trying to key in on when I was with the team interviewing players one-on-one or talking to Greg. Greg obviously had a number of press, press conferences as well as a few round tables. And I was trying to get a sense for what the preparation looked like, what the leadership looked like. Um, I cover a few other teams as well. I've been keying in on Canada. And, and when, when, you, when you pop into the Canadian team, their preparation is elaborate. They're getting weekly reports on their opponents. They're studying who they're playing. They're looking at who does what and where they can exploit them. I'm not getting that level. Really? Um, um, no. From the U.S., they're not getting those no. those those opponent reports. I brought that up to every player I interviewed one on one, and was told no, not yet. Um, that is fascinating. So no. Yeah. So I'm and not, not getting- good. <laughs> fascinating in a bad way. Correct. So I, I'm not getting that the level of preparation is there just yet, at least not at the level that John Herdman, who's experienced at this, at leading successful tournament teams on the women's side and now the men's side, that they're getting. You know, and the, and the Canadian team, Jonathan David, has talked about they're pouring over those reports. They're studying who they're playing. They want to know the flaws. I asked every player I interviewed one-on-one and, and all the players in the round tables the same question, how often are you thinking about this World Cup? How are you preparing for it? And the answers I was getting was a mix of way too much or not at all. 
Um, wow. Great questions, Meg. Thank you. Yeah, well, I'm curious. I mean, I think it's interesting to contrast how different teams are, are preparing. And so I think that certain players, it's encouraging to know they're thinking about it all the time, but perhaps to the extent where it's impacting their performance. And other players, and it's interesting because I got the way too much more from MLS players, and I got the not at all from the Euro-based players. Wow. Is I'm going to get... I will just say this about Canada. When I, I watched both their games, they played Qatar and they played Uruguay. And I got the impression that they played those games exactly to a match report. They knew Uruguay didn't want to possess. So they, and they paid for it. They lost to Uruguay, but they went for it, which I really like to see. They just got unlucky. Two shots, two goals on two shots. And then Qatar, they handled it really well against a team that's probably better than people think. It's going to be hosting the World Cup. But that's a very... Yeah, that's very what you said kind of translated to what I saw. The youth of this team, and you mentioned the European-based players are not thinking about it. Is that is that a problem? Is it? I mean, with this uh, a youthful approach. I mean, obviously, I mean, I saw, I had Eric Winald on last week, and we talked about his comments about it. He goes, "You can't teach. You've got to prepare for this team." And I'm like, I agree with you, Eric. But there's some young players that are going through for the first time. Maybe there is a component of teaching in some small way. And based on what you said, it's like, okay, we're not thinking about it too much. Uh, these are the, the young players are the ones that are going to get us through. This is the, that's the talented right. core. The talent, right. Is that, is, yeah. is the, is, is the youth a concern? I think so. And I had been sick of being told, I had, I had been sick of being told how young this team was. <laughs> and in this camp, I several times thought to myself, this is a very young team. But you felt it. And this might not, you know, this could just be me. But again, I asked a lot of questions about the preparation. How often are you thinking about it? And, you know, to their credit, it was, we have games every other day. We, you know, I'm worried about playing for this team. I'm worried about playing against XYZ star player in Premier League in Syria. Wow. I don't have time to think about it um, kind of thing. And one player told me, when November comes, November comes, I never think about it. And to a certain extent, it's like, okay, great. So you're not going to be nervous, but will you be prepared? And, and, and to me, I was getting very reminiscent vibes to what we heard before World Cup qualifying started. If you remember before World and, Cup and they did, started. And they didn't look ready when it started. No, that first window was ugly. And when it first started, before that window in those press conferences, we were getting a lot of, we're going to leave a mark. This is the golden generation. We're going to come in here. We're going to come in first. And then after that window, it was pushing this one game at a time. You know, there was a, a serious shift. And right now I'm getting from the players, you know, every single one of them is parroting, change the way the world sees American soccer. No. Tyler Adams, <laughs> Tyler Adams told me, I asked, I asked, and I, I think the world of Tyler Adams, I really want to emphasize that. His leadership, I think, is incredible. But I asked him the, the mark his team wants to leave, and he said he wants this, he said this team wants to look back and have this be the most pivotal moment in U.S. soccer. I mean, these are tall orders. These are big, change the way the world sees American soccer. Have this be the most impactful moment. They're asking a lot, expecting a lot for people who are also not thinking about it that much. That's, so I don't know. I don't know if that sounds harsh, but that's my current. No, thing. it's not. It's and, and my, Tyler's the best interview of the bunch. And I, you don't want to hear prepared statements. You want to hear them express themselves and be real because it's a, it's a real situation. You want to. And if they're doing that, it's a little offsetting. And, and you should keep it close to the best. And, and the public shouldn't know everything. We understand that, whether it's a coach or a player. Uh, but that's very good questions that you ask because you can get them to, to answer the right way. And you've got to look at the way they answer things. And I think you can be, it's very telling. I mean, but that is, that is a, a, a loaded response. I mean, it's for, for a, a, situ, a game that, I mean, for a tournament, it's obviously big for them and it's big for everyone watching, but you, you want to manage it in, in a way where you can, where it's, you're not putting more pressure on your shoulders. And it feels like it's kind of doing that. Uh, this has changed been... the entire trajectory, changed the entire perception. The, they're, they're expecting a lot. Yeah. 
yeah, we're just repeating each other at this point, but yeah, they're expecting no, no. a lot of themselves for a team who has also not given me any concrete evidence that they're doing what Canada is doing, where Canada, I think, is being very humble and about their aspirations and studying their opponents now and every week. And I would like to see that level of preparation, but that's, I wasn't told that's happening. Meg, that's brilliant reporting. And I haven't heard this anywhere else. And I am, I am overwhelmed that you said it on my podcast so that my audience can hear it because that is unique and you were fair with the players, whether they're MLS based or European based. Cause I think we get caught into these factions and we've got to kind of put it all together and judge these guys individually, see who's going to put their hand up. Who's not, who's ready, who isn't. Cause that's going to be on Greg Berhalter's and maybe that's why, how he selects this team. Cause he's seeing it at an intimate level. And we got, and whether you have criticism for Greg Berhalter, you have to uh, respect the fact that he's going to know this squad better than all of us. And he's going to probably see what you are seeing and what, what we're sharing here. You would hope. You would hope. I think he does. I, yeah. I think he does, actually. I, I have a sense he does, yeah. Uh, Meg, I, I should have started with this, and I, I could talk about this men's national team, and we're just talking about it endlessly, and it's fascinating at every step for me. And I didn't want to start the conversation with the, the Sally Yates report because it is – it's revolting. It is heartbreaking. It is, it just takes all hope away and makes you rethink this sport, you know, shrouded this NWSL situation with uh, allegations of sexual misconduct, not just allegations, things that we can really point your finger where there's so much in uh, so much evidence that, uh, and so many, so much brave, so many brave people coming up to talk to it repeatedly. And it's secrets, it's lies, it's ignorance. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. And I, I know we're not going to do it justice here, but uh, it did come out. Uh, Sally Yates saying, in general, it appeared that NWSL teams, the leagues, and the federation prioritized concerns of legal exposure to litiga litigation by coaches. There was fear on that front. Um, Cindy Parlow Cohn saying, this investigation findings are heartbreaking and deeply troubling which is the right things to say, but all of this was there for some time. And it was the reporting from what we're hearing without that, does this even come to the surface? No, no, a huge credit is due to reporters like Meg Linehan who worked with these players to bring this initially to light a year ago now. I think the Federation deserves credit for bringing in Sally Yates and for really taking seriously the, the investigation that followed, but they would never have done that had reporters not put them under the spotlight because clearly the awareness was pervasive in the Federation and outside of the Federation. People did not know. They lacked the will to do something about it. So it did come from reporters like Meg Linehan shining the light and the investigation came after. Um, Sally Yates did an incredible job but now what? I mean, now you, you, I think that the, one of the biggest impacts is the lack of trust. Um, and like you said, it's, it's just appalling. I mean, it's, it was pervasive and it's hard to find the people not complicit in not caring. Um, we're not caring enough. So I'd like to believe, I mean, I think a lot of people moving forward from here have talked about will this happen again? Will this not happen again? And we were given some solutions. We were given things like safe sport, which is thrown out all the time and isn't trusted by athletes, clearly. So I'd like to say that I trust the solutions given, but I don't yet, actually. And so I think that a, an important step has been taken. I think the, the investigation itself is a success. The reporting of reporters like Meg Linehan is a success. Um, but it remains to be seen whether or not the people within each club, within the Federation, will continue or find the integrity to care when this stuff happens, because it will happen again. And, and I did, I did a, a piss poor job of explaining this, because I know some people aren't aware of what's going on, but uh, many cases of sexual misconduct with NWSL coaches, front office, um, it was at a point at the end of the season that half of the league's teams parted ways with head coaches due to complaints from players 
of situations and it's all there. You can read about it. It is macabre. It is revolting uh, situations where a coach opened up a computer to show some player to show some game footage. And all of a sudden it was some adult content um, inviting players over uh, on a social level, thinking that they were coming in to talk about the game and the, the fear of these players getting offered alcohol and um, just terrified about their position with the club and these these coaches overreaching and doing just awful things, abusing their power. And it, the sad part is it wasn't an isolated incident, really, uh, Meg, that it was just so far-fetched. Um, any idea of how, how it could get to this point and where can we look at to... I mean, we're, we're, the, the hammer's got to drop, and we I think we agree with that. And, and if it doesn't, then that's another issue. But how this got so out of control... I think a few things. I don't have all the answers, but I, I would I would suggest a few things. One thing I would say is the general culture of protecting your own. And you see that in media, you see that in MLS and then in NWSL and in the sports leagues where people have friends. People don't want to be the one who calls out someone. So people don't want to drop the hammer. I mean, almost pervasively these, these coaches who are being accused or proven to have done these things we're then getting recommendations from people at the highest level for their next job and recommendations from people who knew, recommendations from people who are still in positions in NWSL yeah. or in US soccer. And I think that first of all needs to be rooted out. I think it needs to be a clean house when it comes to anyone who knew and didn't specify what exactly had happened to make it stop. So I think it, it's one thing people not wanting to be the one to end someone's career by saying what had happened. I think that's one thing. A second thing is, is believing athletes when they come forward and report these things. I mean, it's horrific to have players like Kristen Press who for years were reporting things and then being iced out of clubs because of it. I mean, if a player reports something, they need to be respected. It took players like Alex Morgan advocating for her teammates um, who didn't have as much of a microphone things to be taken seriously i think that's horrific i think athletes need to believe when they're reporting these things so it's a culture thing it's a believing athletes when they come forward thing um and it's a systems thing i mean it, it needs there needs to be ways for these things to be reported i i need in some of the solutions provided were somewhat encouraging and that athletes will be on the reporting councils around the councils of people reporting what the policies are. I think that's key. Um, but we're gonna need diligence from, from reporters, from the public um, to hold these people accountable. It's, it shouldn't just be a reporter's issue. And that's the, that, that, and to what you said, it's, it's tremendous with Meg and so many others that have come up. And it's terrifying to think if they didn't speak up where this would be, or if US soccer just said, okay, Sally Yates, we're, we'll figure this out on our own, but that, that it took that and it, it's got to be, you know, it's got, there's got to be law and order. There's got to be crime. If there's crime, there's got to be punishment. And I, I hope that there's a steady flow of that. Obviously, everything has to be investigated thoroughly. And hopefully that process is going. I, I will add, I wanted to say this because it, it, it's frustrating because the NWSL was this rocket ship of success. These teams coming in, full houses, uh, a TV deal, all this great. Um, things around the league that said this is a property that's taking off that should get investors that have partners that should be connected to it because in four or five years the success of the u.s women's team the world cup ratings the success of countries outside of the u.s everything is pointing on a great trajectory for this for the women's game and then you get this and it's such a punch in the stomach yeah. and now when you mention nwsl sadly this is probably the first thing people mention how do we, how does NWSL pick up the pieces as let's maybe separate the allegations and as NWSL, as a business, as moving forward in this next chapter, what would you like to see it so that A, this doesn't happen and B, um, they, uh, they are made completely whole and NWSL becomes this incredible property that we saw it developing and still does. It's just unfortunate that this is dragging unfortunately dragging it down in some ways first and foremost and above anything else it has to be accountability and it can't stop at just the support i mean every club 
needs to be releasing statements. It needs to be investigating their internal processes. It needs to be making sure that this isn't happening at their club and it needs to be responding to what's happened at the past at their club. I mean, we still have clubs that we're sheltering individuals or are still sheltering individuals who need to be held accountable. And so I think first and foremost, it comes down to each and every individual club to be accountable to what they have or are doing to shelter individuals who should not be given that. Um, beyond accountability, I mean, unfortunately, flash fortunately, I think that this skill and, and increasing level of the players will speak for itself in terms of overshadowing what's known about the league. I think it's year 10 and they're only getting better. They're only getting bigger audiences. They're breaking records. I think it's such an exciting time to be a women's soccer fan in the United States. And I think that the skill and level and storylines of these players and these clubs are going to overshadow what's gone on in the past. And so I think these clubs will do themselves a service to hold themselves accountable, clean house where it needs to be cleaned house. And then the game will speak for itself if, if, if they do that, but that's the first step. Meg Swanick, uh, for all the latest on uh, the Sally Yates report, check her out. Uh, we'll be covering the World Cup for BR Football, The Guardian, The Philly Inquirer. Just a top-tier reporter. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as, as much as I did. Meg, you are a rock star, and I'm a lot smarter in a lot of ways of topics I, I, I wasn't so familiar with and topics that I thought I was, and I appreciate that. Thanks for joining me here today. Thanks, Max. It's been a pleasure. All right, have a nice, go get a nice, a nice beverage at one of the pubs before it's too late, because I know they close early there in London. Meg, <laughs> Meg Swanick joining me here in the business, and we'll be back with stoppage time to take a closer look at the Champions League. We'll be back. Time now for stoppage time. We are previewing the critical round three of the Champions League games on Tuesday and Wednesday. A bunch of Americans are going to play. It's a long list. Uh, I forgot, it's Cohen, the goalkeeper, Maccabi Haifa, Orsawi playing for Club Bruges, or one of the big stories. There'll be a lot of Americans, and we'll see about McKenney and Pulisic. Exciting times. Exciting times indeed. The, the Scottish base players, let's go. So critical round three, nothing, none of the, just knock them out, drag them out matchups, which are going to be hard to get at this stage. Inter-Barcelona, I think the best of the bunch. That'll be on Tuesday because this is a chance to see if Inter has what it takes. It's been a good start for the Serie A teams. Napoli's been incredible. Milan lead their group for now, and you figure Juventus will come to life. They don't have any wins in their first two games, so they need it big time. And Inter are supposed to finish third, in my estimation, in that group. Bayern have won their first two, and Barcelona, with Robert Lewandowski and the new players, should escort Bayern out of that group. But here's Inter at home at the San Siro with a great opportunity to do that. That'll be on Tuesday. And that really is, along with Benfica PSG, which are the top two teams in Group H, are the games that uh, stick out. Club Bruges, you know, Club Bruges, the Belgian team, two wins out of two, five goals scored, none against. They went to Porto and won 4-0. Uh, Simon Mignolet is probably the most recognizable player there. Ferran Jutla, the Spanish attacker, really impressed me when I got to see the extended highlights uh, in the victory over Porto. Club Bruges, six points in their group. Leverkusen, Atletico at three, Porto zero. So you're reading that group. That's a really tough group. And this is going to be one of these stories because if a team like Bruges or, say, Shakhtar Donetsk, who have a shot at it, sort of, uh, sporting, these teams that are currently leading their groups can win a group, that throws this tournament into a whole nother atmosphere, stratosphere, because now all of a sudden, now all of a sudden you have uh, first place teams playing a weaker second place teams in the group and the round of 16 could see heavyweights facing each other instead of them meeting in the quarters or the semis. So that's important. If Club Bruges can maintain this standard, game changer. Atletico will be their opponent. Club Bruges hosting Atletico. By the way, is it Bruges or Bruga? 
And I've heard everyone say it. Respected voices say both. I'm going to go with Bruges. Bruga sounds good, though, when you say that. Club Bruges at home in Atletico. If they win that game, you know, Atletico's could be in big trouble. Can you imagine? They're a perennial Champions League quarterfinalist, semifinalist. They could be Gonski. It's a big ask. But that's what makes this game compelling. That's what that's going to be the... I, I know we want to watch Inter Barcelona. I think I want to be plugged into Bruges Atletico or Bruga. Remember that movie with uh, 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 Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson. Brendan Gleeson, underrated actor, fantastic talent. He played Churchill in a movie. I thought it was fantastic. He was also great in Braveheart. So uh, an actor who doesn't get enough credit. And they're in a movie, and I, I forgot the name of it, but it's getting all this... It's coming out, I think, this uh, early 2023, and it's getting all the uh, top reviews and awards, etc. So we'll look forward to that, right? I, I kind of know the name of it, but uh, it was hard to say, right? It is called The Banshees of Inishedin. I hope I said that correctly, but I'll watch it. Those two were great in the, the, the movie about Bruges. I mean, that was a good that was a good flick. Let's get back on the rails here. So that's a big one there. Um, sporting lead Group D, they are traveling to Marseille. Marseille's been a nice story. Have you noticed that? La OM, they are in second place in Ligue 1, and now they can pick up some momentum if they can get that victory over Sporting. They can move back in to Group D. By the way, Sporting five goals scored, none against, just like Bruges. And they have two wins out of two. Ajax face Napoli, Liverpool, Rangers. Napoli lead the way in that group. This is a chance for Ajax to pull them back. Napoli's another unexpected first place team. Liverpool, they beat Liverpool. Liverpool is in a huge mess. You know, we talked about Erling Holland earlier. And remember he had that bad community shield game. Everyone said, oh, this is not... Maybe the Premier League's not right for him. Well, he shut us all up. And everyone, including myself, are going, Darwin Nunez is going to be a game changer. Well, Darwin Nunez has fallen flat. He's fallen flat. He, I mean, he's down the pecking order of these striking options for Liverpool. And they got some problems everywhere. Defensively, attack. So, we shall see what happens with regards to Nunez. I hope it's a successful stay there. But right now, it's not looking so good. But Liverpool host Rangers. They should win that game. Rangers look like they're just happy to be there. But Napoli, I mean, this is City. Ah, we've been waiting for them to make breakthroughs here. Two or three teams, not just Juventus. Or that one time Atalanta made it through. Looking for a collective effort. That's a great opportunity. Let's look at Wednesday's games. Milan lead Group E. They travel to Chelsea. Chelsea have one point out of two. Remember, they lost to Dinamo Zagreb. So Group E... Chelsea, Milan, Dinamo, and Salzburg play. This could be, by the third match, They all four of those teams could be all clogged in there together. Big spot for Chelsea. Hopefully Christian Pulisic. Because he played so little, but he did well. Maybe this is a game he starts. Maybe this is a game he starts. And it will show us that Graham Potter believes in Pulisic. And all of a sudden, we have a stake in it. Because Christian Pulisic, who just couldn't get out of the doghouse with Thomas Tuchel, Maybe this is his spot. I don't think he's going to get out completely, but maybe he can here or there. Real Madrid take on Shakhtar. That's first versus second in Group F. I think those two are probably going to get through. Group G, Manchester City versus Copenhagen. We have to see what Erling Haaland's going to do. It's Manchester City. Erling Haaland keeps scoring goals, but when they need it the most, when City's in a semifinal or a final, he's got to score a goal there. Manchester City have to get over the hump. They, they, they're not going to get a better team than they have right now with Erling Haaland. But how many goals does he score against Copenhagen? Could be another hat trick. He's a hat trick machine right now. Sevilla played Dortmund. Uh, Dortmund, uh, no Gio Reyna. We'll have to wait and see. Hopefully he's back next week. But Dortmund just need to keep pace. Sevilla need the result. Group H is already done and dusted. PSG, Benfica both have six points, I think. Juventus and Maccabi Haifa, no points. It's not done and dusted, but Benfica hosts PSG. Juventus, you figure, get the points against Maccabi Haifa. But Benfica-PSG has become a big game now. Does John Brooks get a look? 
Eh. He's playing sporadically. He gets a few minutes here, a couple of minutes there. He's playing behind an 18-year-old center back. He's, I think, just a luxury player at this point. So I'm not too optimistic about that. But the Champions League match day three, halfway poll, we'll know a lot more. Some teams may qualify by then. We shall see. And then we kind of get into it. And then we'll have to settle down by the new year. We'll get a match day four here very shortly. And by the way, if you are a player who plays for a Champions League team coupled with uh, a national team, I mean, where, where do you catch a, a break here? Where do you collect yourself? These kid, these guys are going to be burnt out. Virgil van Dijk talked about it, and he's one of those guys. So he played national team, important Nations League games for the Netherlands. Weekend he plays for Liverpool, and now he plays for Liverpool in the Champions League. I mean, talk about demanding schedule. It's crazy. By the way, I was at LAFC training, and I spoke to Giorgio Chiellini. We had him on our LAFC podcast, and he uh, was talking about the the national team players and I was talking about how LAFC, how do we reincorporate the players that represented the national team? And he goes, well, we only had five. I go, Giorgio, that's a lot. Five's a lot for an MLS club. And then he goes, and then I thought, oh, he came from Juventus, which probably loses what, 15 players to national teams ahead of their uh, uh, international windows. So I gave him a break on that one, but it made me laugh. I just I pinch myself that Giorgio, I get to see Giorgio Chiellini twice a week and Gareth Bale twice a week. That's a charmed life, folks. I'm blessed. And as we wrap up this week, just want to say thank you to everyone. If I don't get to say it to all of you, for the LAFC family and MLS to be able to broadcast these games, I'm going to miss it so much. Hopefully, I'll be able to call some LAFC games for MLS ahead. But being at that stadium is a special place. I wish I could have done that for the rest of my career. Uh, I would have been completely happy. But like everyone else, we have to adapt and adjust. And I shall do the same. Appreciate you guys tuning in. Rate, review, download, subscribe. Tell a friend. We'll be back again. We'll be back with a vengeance every week ahead of the World Cup. Until we meet again, Placido Domingo.